Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Everybody and welcome to a special presentation of the Alien Minute podcast. I'm John Engel, and I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're going to talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. You have we met? My memory's a little fuzzy. Are you still a Nazi? Hey Mitch, how's it going? I'm, uh, it's going great. I'm, I'm so happy about Indiana Jones. You Me know, too. I was, I was like low expectations, and breathe, be care, you know, and and it was a fantastic experience, and so I'm just so happy. Like so, I'm so happy. I don't even want to watch it again. <laughs> That's how ha- well, I'm so happy I'm afraid maybe to watch it again. I don't think you should be afraid. I've seen it twice and I liked it even more the second time. And you no, know, I think this is I probably said this on a, on our last Jedi episode or something like that. When it comes to things that I love as much as Star Wars and Indiana Jones and so on and things that I'm like geek out enough about that I daydream about it. And I think, and I speculate and I wonder, and I put too much weight on it going in that first one. I usually have to kind of like get through it and go back the second time, because the first time I'm like, it's harder to focus on the movie in a way because my own mind has made, it has made these decisions like, Oh, this is going to happen or maybe this should happen or so-and-so should act like this or, it should look more like the old movies and all these things. And as I'm going through, I'm kind of having to calibrate myself to the movie as it goes. So that when I go back in the second time, I can relax. I know exactly what I'm getting and I can actually take the movie in. And that's been true of every star Wars movie that's come out in recent years. And it was totally true of this one as well, because I will say right off the bat, I'll say that I struggled with it the first time I watched it for the first half hour or so. And I wasn't sure I liked it. And there are things we can talk about later. There are things about it that I still don't, uh, I'm not that keen on, but um, it grew on me by the end. I really enjoyed it. So going back the second time I went in with this positive feeling and I tell you, it was 
kind of a weird emotional experience uh, to see it the second time. I actually got kind of emotional uh, where I wasn't so much the first time. This time, I because I think I was a little looser and experiencing it as opposed to observing it, I would got a little emotional watching it the second time. You know, so I the, recommend going for that experience, Mitch. I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it. The beginning of the um, screening before the movie started, they had a extended trailer for Mission Impossible coming up mm-hmm. and talked about how they built this train and it was all this practical train stuff. And, and, and I was, and then you get to Indiana Jones and the dial of destiny and it starts on a train and there's one moment in the train sequence. That's so for me, like painfully CGI that I was afraid for a minute that, Oh no, like it looks like a cartoon. This is so bad. And, and what's really interesting though, is like in terms of that train, Mission Impossible is just like, we're just going to be, you know, we're Mission Impossible. Everything's practical. Everything's built. We're modern. We're not really nostalgic, right? And then Indiana Jones is completely steeped in nostalgia all the way back to Raiders. The whole point of it is it's a throwback to a different kind of of story. And so I found in a weird way that it mitigated the kind of shock of, because it made me remember, oh yeah, this is at the end of the day, no matter how much money you spend on it, it's still supposed to be a throwback to old, cheap Republic B serials. And weirdly enough, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of the most expensive movies ever made, this film, and has only made about half of what its budget was, which is a little terrifying in terms of just the, the way that numbers in Hollywood work. But I kind of just was able to really lean into the nostalgia of it because that's kind of what it's all about. You know, it's about... Right. it's. It's it's a nostalgic point in the series and because it's the end and he's old and it's nostalgic from the get go as a concept. So that was that made it easier for me emotionally, I think. Right. Well, let me ask you this. We might have talked about the we might have should have talked. About and we should before. just say there's going to be spoilers galore, folks. So oh, yeah. Massive. If you spoilers, haven't that, seen that'll be on the. You, I'll put that in the title of the episode. Well, <laughs> it will be spoilers. Um I was going to say, we, we definitely want to talk about other Indiana Jones movies a little bit here. Do you want to just kind of move through this movie, though, and hit on points of the old movies as we go along? Because I feel like we could kind of go through this movie in order, and also uh, it will bring up things about the older movies. And anytime you want to interject with something, feel free. But since we're already on the train sequence, the opening sequence, I wanted to get out of the way that um, my most negative comment about the movie was is that i don't particularly love this opening sequence it's fine but um it it doesn't work on a, on a few levels for me and one of them is obvious i think most people will can predict what i'm going to say which is de-aging the face of harrison ford it's not there yet guys you're still not there <laughs> i want hollywood to understand that you're doing better but you're not there and you might've gone a little too far. Um, most of the time the de-aging works best when the, when the figure is not moving around very much, not talking too much. Um, mm-hmm. I think that Marvel did okay with Samuel Jackson, for instance, though, and Captain Marvel, that was maybe still the most impressive one I've seen. And it, and part of that might've also been that he's that way through the entire movie and you get used to it, you know? So in this case, it's, um, it's confined to a, a sequence, a lengthy kind of cold open, but a cold open nonetheless. And a that cold open, which was conceived as a five minute, five page 
opening in the original drafts of the script and which James right. Mangold expanded to 25 minutes. So is it that long? I didn't even realize. It was it, that yeah. Long. It's almost, I think it's almost 25 minutes and it's, and so you're it's yeah, it's a lot. It alone, it's a lot. So and, it alone takes the movie beyond the two hour. Like it is a two hour and yeah. 24 minute long movie. So without this, it's a two hour movie. The movie that is the movie really all this opening does really is kind of set up the object in a couple there's, of character beats. There's a it's great two hour and 10 minute movie trapped inside of this two hour and 25 minute movie. Exactly. It's too long. It's, a, it, it, it's this, flabby, yeah. as you said. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That my particular thought as I was watching it um, both times is it's just so flabby. There's there's an entire car of the train that should have been cut out completely because twice he walks into a train car, makes a face cut to the reverse shot of Nazis. Now, the first time it's the two Nazis. In this case, there's the point of interest, which is this uh, Lance, um, the Holy Lance or whatever they want to, you want to call it. I don't know what uh, much about it. And that works because it's the point of pursuit, you know, like this, okay, this needs to happen. And it's a better scene than later when he just walks into another one, exactly the same. He walks into the door, reacts, reverse shot, a bunch of Nazis all sitting around eating. And all he does there is kind of hide for a second, cut that out. You know, there's all kinds of places where I could see cuts that could have happened to tighten this thing up because it feels repetitive and flabby. And like you said, the CG, I, I kind of don't care. Like when he's running across the top of the train is really, 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 really CG. And yeah. at the same time I go, you know, it's of this time. And like you said, it's a, it's a, it's supposed to be a B movie. Like you're supposed to always kind of be in that zone. So for 2023, the B movie effect is that as opposed to the, you know, um, 10 commandments, Tesla be DeMille sky behind Indian Raiders. Right. Right. Super fake looking as well. Right. But different, right. obviously a different approach. Right. Um, that said, I, I want to kind of start a thread here that I'm going to touch on as we go through the movie, which is um, one thing about this cold open is that unlike I'm trying to think of other ones really feel this way. This one to me feels more like the end of another indie movie, like where the other ones are like cold opens and there's uh, a different MacGuffin or whatever you want to call it involved. Some, sometimes Mohashi or or the idol in the first one, mm-hmm. they never feel quite like this is the climax of a movie, but you kind of feel like this one is and that this Nazi general or whatever he is, is the main villain of the movie that th- that's finishing here. And um, I want to point out that a theme and um, something that's subtextually deeper about this movie than I think people are getting credit for, which is the opening conversation with this guy. And he says, uh, you know, Andy's talking about, well, you got all this nice stuff here, stuff that you stole from other people. And he goes, the Nazi goes, well, to the victor go the spoils. And he goes, Victor. And he explains how they're lost. He's like, you lost, pal. You lost, right? yeah. So in this sequence, then, all the action takes place. You see the spoils that are real. He points out that all these things are very valuable and real other than that, that saber. Um, and when you get to the end of the sequence... And he faces off against this general on the top of the train and Basil uh, Shaw shoots him. And Indy gives this kind of corny action movie moment line where he says to the victor, go the spoils and kicks him off the train. Right. Well, subsequently they do get the spoils like the, the train wrecks, but the train is saved. And the last shot you see is Indy and Basil walking towards the bridge. And you can see a Union Jack stuck on the top of the, of the train. The allies did get this stuff back. Right. So the victors to the victor did go the spoils. So in that little sequence, there's a setup for this theme that's throughout the movie. Okay. 
And, and I want I, I want to tease that now. I'll let you say a few things, but we can get to it. There's another scene later that I want. I think we'll then call back to this. So I don't know if you had anything else to say about the opening sequence. Or... I, I do. I was just going to add that. Um, yeah, and I think that 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 theme of you lost the war, you guys have lost, becomes that an engine because it's going to mm-hmm. ultimately be revealed that it's about him figuring out a way to win the war after all. Um, and sorry if I blew your if I blew your punchline. No, line. no, but it goes um, beyond that. That's that's on the surface. I'm t- there's a subtext to okay. it, though too. Um, but, but the and how one it plays into I, the Indiana Jones franchise. But go ahead. Well, yeah, and that's what I was going to say too. In terms of just the franchise, and in terms of what is for me, it has always been the greatest pleasure of these movies and their action sequences. When the action sequences are really well done, is that is that they really work hard to be clever in the action sequences to either set up an expectation that moves you toward a trope that you've seen a million times and then subvert it with something with something fun or just do something outrageously surprising within the context of how the scene is constructed that make that kind of bolt jolt you out of your chair and mm-hmm. i feel like m- almost every action set piece in the movie certainly this sequence and the tuk tuk chase later on um it has those moments, those grace notes, those surprising moments or those thwarted expectation moments. And then there's all a bunch of just junk in between them. That's mm-hmm. just random car chasey stuff or actiony stuff and less of that. And more of the, of the clever stuff, it would have distilled all of these action sequences into things that were, I think m- more elevated and special. Um, it's almost right. like, you know, as we were talking about, you said flabby, you know, it's almost like you, I wonder whether there is an actual version of this movie, you know, that could physically be cut, you know, and, well, and yeah. like you said, there's like the one train car you cool. don't need. And I would, I, and I would just, let me, and, and to illustrate it, the, the answer may be no, it can't because every scene seems to have an extra idea that's deeply incorporated into the section that you don't need. For example, do they really need to be looking for the spear of destiny? And do we need to find out that the, that the, the spear, the Lance is fake? I mean, why couldn't they have just been, um, why couldn't they just have been going after the, the dial, you know, or, or why couldn't or, they have had the piece of wax and melted the wax to, and, and realize, Oh shit, we only have half of it. And, and that's the, that's the big reveal. Or I, I don't know. I just feel like almost every scene, not just sequence action sequence, but even a lot of the dialogue scenes, have this it's as if somebody comes along and says we need an extra idea we need an extra idea sometimes you yeah. don't need an extra idea the extra Can idea gets in the way um i like that they aren't pursuing the dial and it comes like first of all it gives basil's story a little bit more weight that he discovers sure. it like it's like right okay oh shit that's they've here? got the antheterra here yeah why they could have just been stopping the train it could have just been the nazis stole all this valuable shit Put it on a train. We got to stop them. That's it. That's what it ends up being ultimately anyway. Yeah. It's not the, 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 the dial isn't particularly important to Indy. Right. Uh, he doesn't seem to care about it that much. So to me, it's like, we know that they stole all this shit. This shit belongs in a museum, which we know Indy <laughs> believes in deeply. Right. We're stopping this train, damn it. And that's the, that's the scene. I don't even know if he needs to get captured. There's other yeah. things, man. There's all, there's a few things where I might take a pass at the script and go, why aren't they just chasing the train? The train takes off. Indy shows up. Um, we're talking about Mission Impossible a lot lately. That's how Mission Impossible would start, right? As a matter of fact, one of the Mission Impossible movies starts almost exactly that way. 
Right. So um, I do think there's lots of things that we'll talk later about a big one I think could have been excised from the movie, a big a whole subplot that could have been excised from the movie that would have tightened this thing up. Um, none of this, just to keep in mind, we were positive from the moment we started talking about this movie. None of this ruins the movie for me. It just doesn't. I, everything you're saying is right, and yet it didn't. It's not doesn't right. create a de- so, detrimental viewing experience for me. I, I kind of like along for the ride. For all the craziness of a, of a Bee Republic serial where things happen that are impossible, y- you go with it. And I felt like what was probably more grateful for than anything else in this movie was it didn't insult my intelligence. Yeah. As crazy as it gets at the end, somehow that didn't insult my intelligence. Whereas if I can just drop back to, uh, I could trash Crystal Skull, which has lots, which, which has some pretty bad mm-hmm. insults. Does, but I just want to go all the way back to, to Temple of Doom for just a minute. And okay. um, because I watched Temple of Doom last night thinking, maybe it's not as bad as I remember. And uh, I think it might even be worse than I remember when, I'm, when I watched it last night. But really? what's so mm. interesting about it is that it is so beautifully directed in terms of what Spielberg does with the camera and compositions. And, and when that movie is firing on all cylinders, it's unbelievable. It doesn't hit the heights that Raiders hit because it does a lot of stupid things and it has a character that it doesn't care about in Willie Scott or that is, that it's contemptuous of and who's obnoxious. But there's this moment in Temple of Doom where they jump out of the airplane on this inflatable raft and mm-hmm. you watch as this, and I don't know how they did it. I don't know if it's dummies. I don't know if it's stuntmen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a miniature, uh, half scale. It seems practical, um, but the you watch as this raft tumbles out of the plane, inflates with three people on it, and they hit the the, the mountain that's at an angle and start sliding down on the snow. And it's like. Holy cow, that is so outrageous. I actually believe it. I buy it. It's completely <laughs> outrageous, but I buy it. And then they go off this cliff. And the cliff is impossibly high, is phony as all get out. Mm-hmm. And they you know, fly through the air and they crash into the river. And, and in that moment, I was just like, God damn it. It was so good. And it was so outrageous. But then they had to go one more step that just insults my intelligence. Now, maybe had, I'm just taking on it a too hat. seriously. They, they put a silly hat on it and you laughed and you said, oh, that's fun. That's good. And then they put a silly hat on top of the silly hat. And you went, damn it. You ruined yep. the silly hat. Yep. <laughs> too many silly and hats. So I get it. Yeah. I feel like, and of course, you know, Crystal Skull does that. With multiple silly hats, because Spielberg has a silly hat to put on the hat, and then Lucas has a silly hat to put on top of the silly hat on top of the silly hat. And so, you know, between refrigerators <laughs> and prairie dogs, you're just like, oh, my God, I can't fucking believe this 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 movie. Um, so, yeah, there's none of that with Dial of Destiny. Some people may quibble about the crazy time travel business at the end of the picture. I didn't mind it because every movie has some kind of weird element of the fantastic and some some shape or another, but it did not ever insult my intelligence. It's it's insulted my butt a little bit because it was too long, but it didn't insult my intelligence. And I, you're right. Like everything that happens at the end of an Indiana Jones movie, going back to Raiders is silly, ridiculous, could never happen. That's the whole idea. Therefore 
I don't know how anybody could have a problem with the time travel thing. It's just, you got to step it up a little bit. You know, I feel like you got to kind of make it crazier as you go along. Yep. But also, it's the most appropriate thing for Indiana Jones to finally do at the end. The man spent his entire life obsessed with studying ancient history. Let him experience it once. I yeah. loved it. I uh, I have zero. I, I actually loved it. As soon as I realized what was happening, I was giddy. I thought it was amazing. I mean, I had my suspicions that something was going to, obviously, I knew they were going to travel through time. It became very clear. If they didn't travel through time, what was going to be the end of the movie? Right. That I did not quite expect that. I actually thought it was going to be some sort of multiversal because I've been trained for that now, some sort of multiversal <laughs> thing where they go in and out of different ones and they end up seeing all these periods and all this shit. And, and it would be an action sequence, so to speak. I loved that they made this decision to land at the period. That's the focal point of the movie and let Indy look around and see this. And he's so, I think Harrison Ford was really on it in that scene. I think he yeah. actually let himself get wistful and, sad about this being the end of indiana jones in that scene because when he's looking around he goes this is incredible it's he sells it so well <laughs> i was well, like he I, get emo- I got really emotional watching it that second time i was like yeah it is incredible Indy. he has a commitment to indiana jones that he doesn't have to han solo i mean indiana jones oh. he has been involved in every one of the movies in the in, at mm-hmm. some part of the development phase because that's his character and so that was another thing about the movie is that he he was never he never phones it in. You know, he's always no, no, never. he's always so good. Well, that's one thing I want to talk about. We'll, I want to get to Crystal Skull a little bit because I just rewatched it having seen Dial of Destiny once. It's different. Uh, it's not yeah. good. It still sucks, but it's different. <laughs> but anyway, um so we're we're out of the cold opening now. If we're going sequentially through the movie, and we get to, uh, to this apartment sequence uh, or apartment, yeah, sequence. I guess there are a few scenes in there, um, which we kind of had teased for us in uh, the trailer. You know, we kind of knew that we were going to see this right away. This is how we. This was the condition Indy was going to be in when we got to 1969, and uh, in the commercial, it was um, it was um, um, sympathy for the devil by the stones. I'm glad they cut that and went for the Beatles magical mystery tour instead. Cause sympathy for the devil is ridiculously overplayed and it's great. as long yeah. as this, um, and it's just hyper loud, right? <laughs> also, that's it really jolts you in the theater, but, um, I have to digress for one second to point out to, to my baseball fan friends that are listening right now that I didn't realize on the first one, but on the second viewing, Indy puts on a Chicago Cubs t-shirt. Okay, so it is canonized now that Indy is at least sympathetic to the Chicago Cubs. Uh, and I know I know that there was I know that there was some belief that he was a Giants fan because he supposedly bought the hat for short round. But um our friend Pete Mummert from the Indiana Jones Minute, obviously shout out to Indiana Jones Minute since we're we're stepping into their turf a little bit. Uh he and I he's a big Giants fan and we had this discussion and it was he theorized that Maybe Indy was unhappy with the Western uh, move of the of the Giants from New York to San Francisco, jump ship and started rooting for the Cubs. He did go to the U- University of Chicago. Anyway, that's my baseball digression. John, um, the so summer of '69 your- also a huge a huge year for the Cubs. They were they dominated Major League Baseball the entire year until that black cat ran out on the field, and then the Miracle Mets beat them in the um, in the National League Championship Series. 
What was your question, Mitch? So short rounds doesn't. I thought he had a Yankees hat on. It's a giant. It's a New York Giants hat. Oh, it's a much Giants more appropriate cap. for a kid. Uh, you know, I think. Uh, you know, well, there's the there's also the um, I mean, I know that short rounds not Japanese, but um, there's a Japanese Giants that were very popular back then too. That one of the oldest teams in Japanese baseball. So I don't know. To me, that always I always assumed it was a Giants cap, but I believe this has been well tread and researched by the Indiana Jones Minute guys, especially Pete, um, to and confirm I can't that imagine there's in fact a Giants hat. There's no way that anybody listening to this show right now is unaware of the Indiana Jones Minute. But on the outside I chance, on the outside chance that anybody is, the Indiana Jones Minute is fantastic. Those guys know exactly what they're doing. Uh, we're amateurs compared to those guys and go listen to the Indiana Jones Minute. And I'm sure there's going to be some really exciting stuff happening over there uh, in the wake of this new indie movie. Yeah, I don't want anyone to stop listening to us, but we are far more boring <laughs> than they are. They are much more entertaining talking about Indiana yes. Jones than we are. Just so. Uh, and that's Tom Taylor, my friend. You know, a lot of people know him from uh, if, if any of you listen to my other podcast, ABC BTOS. Uh, Tom is on there with me, and then Jerry Porter and the aforementioned Pete Mummert. So, moving on, old man Indy. I'll I will point out too that the hippie, the hippie neighbor who he has a relationship with of some kind, you know, they know each other, um, calls him Mister Jones twice, and I I appreciated that um, Indy is not pretentious enough to insist upon the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I, right. I, I appreciate right. that right. about Indy. He's not he's not the type to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Nevertheless, so we move on and we, so a lot of this gets to be set up. He works at um, a university in New York. He's retiring that day, apparently um, moving on. And the last, this substantially, I guess the last class he's teaching. Um, yeah. Sets us up, you know, so we get the classic Indy knows everything about the subject at hand. He studied the kids it. don't he's care well first. This time the kids don't care. No, no girl has got a crush on him. Uh, she's not writing. I love you on her eyelids. They're all popping bubbles and yawning. One girl uh, gets distracted by his mention of Syracuse because they are in New York and go oh, Syracuse. And he corrects her and he says, no, t- no, Tanya, not the one in New York. He calls her by her first name, which makes me go, Andy's still a good professor. He knows the kids names. All the- these kids don't give a shit about what he's talking about, but he knows all of them by all of their first names. And I think that just shows that he's a- still a good professor who hero. cares about Cause, his because i can't even manage that so. i have the hardest time with it too um i i, I really do like sometimes i'm like uh you anyway um yeah so all this is set up and we and then introduces us to helena shaw daughter of basil shaw from the opening sequence and uh she arrives he doesn't recognize her but she knows everything right about what he's talking about so um after after he leaves, she meets him in a bar and introduces herself as Basil Shaw's daughter. He calls her Wombat. You can tell that they had this pretty cool relationship, like an uncle-godfather relationship when she was little. But it's been a long time. And um, what did you think? Did you have some preconceived notions of what her character would be? Did you expect her to be the way she was? Or did you expect her to be a, just a straight ally? You know, I think that... I, I wasn't trying to outthink the movie, you know, so mm-hmm. I was pretty taking everything that she said at face value. For me, I find her character to be the most frustrating thing about the movie because on one hand, in some instances, she's the perfect 
foil slash ally that becomes on the same team with him as you could ever hope for. Cause she's, she's interesting. She's funny. She's, she's phys- a great physical actor. Um, but you know, when it, when it has this ultimate reveal that she's there to steal the dial of destiny in order to take it off and auction it off. And she's only in this for the money. It, it for me, it just feels really false. You know, I feel like it's not, it's the least interesting thing that we could be doing with her. Um, and, and yeah, fortune and glory and all that business, but I just don't know how badly I needed that extra, that extra aspect of her, of her personality. You know, I mean, I could see her being, I just think the agenda, the money agenda is, it, it just was boring to me at a certain point. You know, I just don't know. Well, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't agree. I, I actually think her arc is, is really well done personally. And one of the reasons is that I think I sympathize with her reasoning. Um, she's react. She's still young. She's still, she's reactionary and she's hurt. She's hurt. Like yeah. there's no mother. Apparently her father went mad trying to, trying to be righteous about this object. Mm-hmm. So the, the reaction from her point of view might be uh, screw all that. Just get the money. Um, on top of that, she's hurt by Indy not being there for her after. She says so. She right. says so in a joking, snarking way, trying to see, trying to shield herself from the emotion of it. But she's like, oh, might have been nice if some, well, I don't know, father figure might have been there for me, maybe a godfather, you know. Um, right. And she does that, and you go, oh, she was hurt by him not. Did you find there. that you liked her better second viewing, or were you the same? I liked Did her you the have... first viewing, but I liked, her. I saw more of this stuff on the second so viewing. So this and there's is multiple this is for little me. beats. Yeah. I may see it all more on the second viewing too. There's there's multiple little beats. She's does a she's really good and um yeah she's a great actress. I think she's a super. I mean her, she's a brilliant writer and I think she's you can see that in her acting because she knows how to to sell these little beats. And I'm not talking about anything in dialogue. There's a lot of reactions that she has where you start to see her true like deep down feeling that she's like buried start to peek through here and there. Um, specifically, you know, when she asks, you know, oh, well, let's just have a fun Q and A about a time machine. What would you do? And he drops the bomb about Mutt mm-hmm. and the, the Vietnam and the and everything that went wrong with his marriage and everything. And you see her go, oh, like I understand now. She even makes a joke earlier about family because mm-hmm. after all that stuff she says about the Godfather, she goes, well, family's not really your strong suit, is it? And he lets it roll off his back. But she goes, damn, if she knew, I think she realizes if I had known that, I wouldn't have made that joke. And there's right. all these little bits, like when the kid steals his watch, she's like, give it back to him. Give it back. You know, she's yeah, not, I like that yeah, moment. She's I not totally, that was great. Yeah, and she does it multiple times. There's multiple things she does that are little relationship things with the kid, too. A lot of people don't like the kid. I think there's an automatic thing where people just don't like kids in movies. Uh, I think a lot of times people just jump on that. There's such a great, like, big sister relationship she has with them. There's little things. Like when they find that, um, see, I'm not good with remembering what the artifacts are called, but when they find the 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 little disc that's buried in the wax uh-huh. and she goes she goes teddy hold it and um she looks at him and she's like let him hold it she wants him to experience have this like lovely little experience with this artifact it's not all about the money for it really isn't but then we can also talk about the nature of being a woman in the 60s and perhaps she feels like she has to assert herself farther 
as an independent woman so she she takes it maybe a little too far and she says so like oh what like he's like why did you turn out this way and she says what you mean uh, independent self-sufficient beautiful all these things that's what she's yearning for and i think she's not she's not taking the right steps to get there but it's understandable why that would be She's still yeah. young. She's still learning. By the end of this movie, she's going to be good when we get the Helena Shaw uh, Wombat Disney Plus series. Um, we'll see how <laughs> she is later. Um, which I'm, I, I really I really could see that happening. Oh even God. though I think she, she has that overall deal with Amazon. So I don't know how she uh, how she would do that exactly. Uh, <laughs> Amazon would be like, you haven't made a show for us, but you're doing a Disney Plus show. Uh, but anyway digressing hard into the no but i think that and i also i I think she's great yeah since you mentioned the period setting of the of the late 60s a couple of times i would just also just like to add um a you know if i could wave a magic wand and uh, and change one thing about the movie that wouldn't affect anything except my own personal aesthetic connection to it is i really wish that it had been like shot on film that approximated the stock of movies in the 60s or i wish they would have done something digitally to make the movie feel like a 60s movie like there's a couple of moments where it kind of and i and i'd be good with either the naturalistic late 60s look or even the um you know the eastman color uh bond kind of 60s you know six mid 60s adventure look for the film either mm-hmm. one would have been great i i felt like that See- visually it didn't feel like a very good period movie to me. It felt, it felt so overlaid no, with, with, you know, the CG and with the digital being in a digital tick, medium that ticker it, tape and, you know. it, 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 ticker tape was all right, but it still was like, yeah, I wished, I wished it well, would have looked uh, like, you know, like it had a, a little more like to the wild it. bunch. Yeah. See, to me, I would, I don't care that it's set in 69. I want it to look more like French connection or, right. um, right. Late, or, yeah, late, or something late sixties, early seventies. Right. And I think that can kind of pull us back into where we were in the movie. Um, uh, well, almost. But to, well, I, but I, to digress real quickly, Crystal Skull is the other problem that's so weird about that is when they go into the warehouse at the beginning of Crystal Skull, um, we were watching that and, and my son was like, what are they doing visually here? Because it's like, it doesn't look like a 50s movie and it doesn't really look like oh. an Indiana Jones movie. And I don't know what Spielberg and Kaminsky decided was there was going to be their thing for that movie but it's so it also feels like super plastic and digital even though it was shot on film they sort of worked against the film of it so then so then the film thing is it's not enough you know like it you also have to decide to make it feel what to do with the period yeah yeah um yeah so um that brings us to like we'll get back to the period aspect and what um how i think they're riffing a little bit off the period the period of the subsequent a few years more so um, in the story, but I do want to, this is the big scene I want to get to uh, where I think the subtext, the subtext really hits hard. And I'm not saying that I'm some genius that figured this out, but the thing that I haven't heard anybody else talk about is Indiana Jones is cinema's greatest Nazi fighter, right? Like most well-known multiple times. Now he's fought against the Nazis always up until now in the context of even before u.s involvement in world war ii right other than the mention of it in um crystal skull right so it's always dealing with arrogant nazis who are at the height of their confidence and power right they think they're about to take over the world and he's fighting against that so we as we said before now we're in a period post-war period where we're dealing with a former nazi still a nazi um who's once a nazi always a nazi 
exactly. But nevertheless, he's passing as not a Nazi and passing as someone who is just a scientist, right? We get Matt Mickelson's, um, um, I shoot, I've forgotten his last name. For, for, Oh, it's um. Wait, wait, wait! I, I, it's taller. What is it? It's okay, folks. Oh my god, I can't remember his name. Oh my god, now my phone won't work either. (laughs) Um, Mads Mikkelsen's villain. You figure it out. Um, so he is a respected scientist. He's Voller. V O L L E R. Voller. Voller. Okay. Voller. But he's passing as a guy named Schmidt and he's Werner von Braun, right? (laughs) Right. He's Werner von Braun. (laughs) Because he's the guy, he's the guy that got them to the moon, but we know him. We didn't mention it really in the first, he is from the opening sequence. He's the guy who cares the most about the dial. Andy beats him accidentally by the, him getting, you know, he gets knocked off of the train and uh, we have, so Andy doesn't see him again for what, 25 years. Right. Right. So we get this scene where he's staying at, you know, the, park plaza whatever he's staying in a nice hotel in new york during the parade and mangold and company choose to have a black attendant what do you call him a port not a porter on in a hotel but you know room service attendant right room service bring guy. the food so right first person we see is this black man working his job bringing the food you go in we see a good old boy kind of country country boy learning german right? Fair-haired, blue-eyed. We get a guy who I th- either is German or is also trying to learn German, cleaning a gun. So all of a sudden we get this like strange setup and and um, the villain, see, I, I wish I remembered names better, but the, the main henchman guy, isn't that the guy from Pacific Rim? Um, uh, I knew I'd seen him from somewhere, but I was trying to figure out um, where, where he's, where that guy was from. Is for, that forgiveness is that where of where, he's from? From Sons of Anarchy and stuff. I might be wrong. Um, I might be mixing up because there's another guy I get that guy confused with. So Boyd Holbrook but, as Clobber, according to Wik- yeah, Wikipedia, Wikipedia. And then who's the other one? And then, I don't know. Uh, Buff guy is Archer called him. Buff guy. That's what Buff uh, guy. Is um, that's yeah. So Thomas he, Kretschmann is Colonel Weber, a Nazi working with Fuller. No, that's 44. Okay. Oh, well, no. He, this is um, Hulk. Hulk played by Oliver Richter's. A heavily built henchman of Volers, according to Wikipedia. Right. So, but so the redneck so is, this... yeah, the redneck is Clabber. Okay, so Clabber rudely commands. Oh, don't he don't eat off anything with wheels. Put it on a table. So he's immediately rude to him, not politely asking. And we get this character go into the bring the the room service into the room with Schmidt. Um, and um, as soon as Mickelson plays it really well, as soon as he sees he's black, he goes into questioning mode i'm going to question this guy about where he's from uh the bronx no where are your people from in africa so it's all about genetics you know it's all about race race eugenics like kind of you know like you're getting into nazi shit here right away and he and the subject at hand becomes uh, he fought in the war and the subject at hand is you didn't win we lost and it's so of now Right. Like right. this is the one time where the where before it was nostalgic fun, punching punching those old Nazis that are long gone relics to dealing with Nazis who we're dealing with right now. Yeah, who's got a clansman as his buddy, right? This he's got this he's got southern redneck. His, right. Yeah. So yeah. we're representing white supremacists in the present day. It's circa nineteen sixty nine, nevertheless. The idea is the same. And that takes this movie to a, a different level because Previously, it was just the joy of punching old Nazis, and now it's dealing with Nazis that we actually are dealing with um, 
every day. Right now, yeah. And that's where I think, I, I can't believe nobody's, I haven't seen anything about this. Um, anyway, everybody's just like, yeah, we get to watch them punch Nazis again. It's like, it's not, it's real. It's now Nazis that he's punching. It's, that's what we're dealing with here. Mm-hmm. And that's where the subtext takes this movie a, a little further. And this scene is really well put together. The actor who's playing the, um, the food service attendant plays it really well. You could tell that there's like this pain inside of him because of the way he's being talked to. And, um, he hands them and, and I just know he didn't tip. <laughs> he signs the check and hands it to him and you just know he didn't tip. But I'm just saying that I think that that carries through this movie as the theme and the drive. So it's the drive of the villain is we're going to, we didn't lose the war. I can fix this if I do it over again. Now we're doing it in this like supernatural Indiana Jones way. If they're actually going to go back in time and do it again in the real world, they're just trying to do it again by destroying our civilization and right. taking away people's rights right so um sorry to get political for some of you out there but that's the subject that's what the movie's about i hate to tell you this and and it is a big popcorn movie but that's there it's there it's an undercurrent in the movie and and we know because of things that harrison ford says that he is very much on um he's very much on board with getting these guys out of our world as quickly as we can he's hates these guys he's also on board and openly with the speaks about the yeah. anti-war anti-war revolution because he's lost a son to the vietnam war right which i think is brilliant different. that he never yeah. says he never says he went to vietnam and got killed you know he got no. killed in the war um is so great because it makes the audience have to make one step and then if you don't get it well there's a war protest going on so you, if you still don't get what war you're talking about you shouldn't be watching the movie i mean you should be able to piece and- it together and while I know, so this is after his capture, but when he's in the parade and he, he uses, he's using it as a ruse to blend in with the crowd. He's saying, hell no, we won't go. He means it. But I, I think he means it at this point. Yeah, and what's yeah, interesting about it. that is, again, this is another thing. And everything about Mutt in this movie makes everything about Mutt in the in King, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull better. I'm telling yeah. you, I watched yeah, this it. This is the best and I Mutt said, movie in Indiana Jones well, world because I Mutt's not there, what, but Mitch, his presence is a great ghost. I I liked him a lot better this last time I watched it. I think he's fine as a character. I get it. And if you watch, so now we're talking about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for just a moment. <laughs> if you watch, Indy likes him from the get-go. Yeah. He sees himself in him. I don't think he realizes he sees himself. So he just sees a kid that's going off half-cocked. But I think Indy, when Indy was his age, he also went off half-cocked. I think you probably actually see that in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles a few times. Yeah. yeah. But he sees him. He's like, I kind of like this kid. But he's annoying, and I, I, you know, sometimes I have to correct him, blah blah blah. And then when they go on their, you know, their hunt for this, I can't remember what they're looking for. So I just watched the movie. But when they start to discover things together, he's enjoying it. He's enjoying yeah. doing this with this kid. So then he finds out he's his dad. And there's a bunch of dumb jokes about I'm your father. You should stay in school and all this shit. But then there comes that one beat where they're in the main place in the end where the aliens are and everything, and Mutt starts to walk this one direction. He goes all right, this way. And then he stops and he turns around and looks at Indy and goes, it's this way, right? And Indy's like, yep, it is. And he's like so proud that his kid instinctually knew where to go. And then there's the little beat at the end, which is actually, I mean, it's a little corny, but the hat thing at the end. But you can kind of see the love and care. And and when I watched it this time, I went, shit, now he's going to go die. (laughs) It's sad. Indy and him Mm -hmm. are probably going to have a nice little relationship. It's probably going to be rocky at times. And obviously it gets rocky enough that he goes to nam to piss him off as indy says all that's pretty heavy and sad and yeah. when you watch kingdom of the crystal school now you go well it's still so silly and stupid and they make mutt do the silliest things 
but he's much more enriched as a character now to me. And I, and um, I, I say that's one takeaway I had from watching King and the Crystal Soul that I never had before. So that I actually liked Mutt a lot more and I could see the relationship a little bit clearer. It, it occurred to me last night as I was watching Temple of Doom that um, Temple of Doom is, is in some ways so inherently flawed that the notion of kind of retconning it as the first Indiana Jones adventure because it takes place, you yeah. know, in the timeline before is something nobody even wants to think about. <laughs> it's it like nobody would dare call that um, episode one, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, episode two, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like, no, we don't want to do that because it's, well, uh, God. you know, it's. This is a horse you, that's been. Yeah, I know. Jeff, uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Indy's Indy's line about not believing any of the mumbo jumbo supernatural stuff exactly. in Raiders makes zero sense if he'd been through what he went through with uh, Mola Ram, unless he's uh, somehow amnesiac and doesn't remember the heart being. <laughs> he has amnesia yeah, no, after he gets woken up. But yeah, I mean, yeah. not only the Mola Ram stuff, but literally he brings the stones back. And he sees the physical change of the terrain the around him. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like, dude, you've seen some pretty wild stuff to be that skeptical. Or is he just selling uh, Brody a bill of goods to, to appease him? You yeah. could always retcon the that line as being like, oh, he he has he does believe to a certain extent, but he's got to tell uh, Marcus, Marcus that, that he, he doesn't. doesn't, so he doesn't yeah. worry about him or something, which is super weak. But um. Anyway, getting back, um, so I wanted to say, you know, we get that scene in the hotel room, and then the shit hits the fan, right? So, um, Wombat is like talked about the dial. Uh, she she uh, she tells him she thinks it's in the bottom of the river that he and uh, Basil fell into. Um, that her dad said that, but this is all just to get him to show it to her, right? She knows he has it, um, so he takes her to find it, and the bad guys, everybody convenes there. We get the we get our CIA agent who um, it's an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you th what do you think? I can't think. I I don't know if we even get her name. I'm sure it gets spit out here and there, but um, interesting that is, choice, right? That's a good like, question. So, Shonette Renee Wilson is Mason, U.S. government agent. Wilson right. felt that her character's government connections fit into the story in a similar way as to how I'm just reading from Wikipedia. Um, the mm -hmm. same way as how the FBI and CIA recruited black in, in, black agents to infiltrate the Black Panther Party in the 1960s. So, she, so and I and I went there too. I thought about Black Klansmen. I thought about the uh -huh. COINTELPRO um, program under Hoover and how the idea was to create these kind of turncoat uh, character uh, people, you know, to infiltrate their own communities. And now that's all subtext. The question is, why would she be involved in this particular case? If why is she? she yeah, was. I mean, it's the CIA yeah, um, is basically trying to accommodate uh, Voller because he put him on the moon. So I guess he got his own little squad to help him out because I don't really understand what they're why they are helping Voller and his oh, henchmen. I think, I think yeah, back. I think that he knows about the. Okay, this is all like black. Uh, like black, not black ops. What am I thinking? Like shadowy CIA stuff. I think Voller t told them about the dial because oh, he no, wanted I their help. Get you something and they go, oh, time. and the CIA wants something like that because they're yeah. the CIA. Therefore, they right. they so they don't know what he's up to other than he's like, there's this dial, and it's out there somewhere. I don't know who has it, but we can figure it out. And the first person we should follow is this Helena Shaw person. Now. The machinations, there's a few places where the machinations of how they got to a place or ended up in the same place and so on uh, are definitely in question. 
I'm mm-hmm. not too worried about that. But they end up they're they're in New York. I mean, what he of course when you think about it, he doesn't care about a parade, so he's not in in New York for the parade. He's in New York because Helena Shaw is in New York, and they need to find her. So at some point they tracked her there. And he needs the CIA's help to a certain extent, but obviously that need runs out at a certain point. But I thought it was interesting to have this black uh, CIA agent because then it mixes in that um, subtext again. That we, It's like, okay, they are, she is ostensibly in charge, but of course they're not actually going to respect her in the end. And they are going to, there's certain things that are thrown around in the complete lack of following orders. I mean, that how, what did you say his name was? Clabber? just shooting mm-hmm. people at will uh, right. against her wishes. And, and I think she, d- she sort of realizes sadly that she doesn't have control over these guys. Right. Like it gets a little bit more, like you can see the discomfort in her face. And she's like, shit, how do I get out of this? How am I going to deal with this? You know? Um, but it's all confusing. Like I, I have to say that, you know, that she shows up in the class classroom at the bar, you know, then they go to get the stuff and then the bad guys show up and the bad guy in addition to his two guys in tow has these CIA guys in tow and and it's confusing now is hmm. it cre- is it allowing me to ask the right questions so that then it gets it gets cleared up and i feel like i've been properly manipulated or positioned or is it just kind of messy and eventually it kind of sorts itself out as we move along well, well remember that the CIA has got the point on this thing those two guys go along again. We're appeasing Schmidt. Schmidt has a certain amount of sway, so his guys can come along for the ride. They rebelliously go on their own. There's a mm-hmm. moment where the CIA, there's the CIA guy who's on crutches, mm-hmm. and they start off into the school, and he's like, hey, you're not Asians, and they just look at him and just keep going. So okay. right, that's the point where it starts to make sense in that they're splintering off. Okay, so see, this is second read. Yeah. Did you get that second time or first time? No, I saw it both times, but um, okay. but yeah, I mean the re- reading and experiencing are two. I observed it the first time. I might have read it the second time. If you okay. get what I mean. No, this um, is cool. Like I'm, co- well, I'm excited to see it a second time just to because I did not, I was not completely following it. I was just mm-hmm. kind of there emotionally, which is usually how I watch movies the first time. You know, I, so I'm not good yeah, yeah. looking ahead steps. So I was a little head scratchy, but it's nice to know that it's it's clearer than I it is I I mean look it's not it's not some like puzzle that's snapping together perfectly anything like that I kind of don't want it to be I want it to move I don't want to know all the machinations uh, take the time to show me every little move right Uh, I imagine if you go through every Indiana Jones movie there's there's all kinds of finessing of but they're juggling uh, a lot of transitions and so on yeah right now they're juggling a lot of balls a lot of balls so we get into the school. The bad guys get into the school, and we'll we'll include the CIA agent as a bad guy to a certain extent. She's she's somewhere in between. But um, and here's where Mangold, I believe, is clearly riffing off of our early '70s paranoid thrillers, specifically yeah. Three Days of the Condor. Right. So a lot of people are 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 showing distaste for the murders that occur in this movie, that there's a lot more innocent people. There's always been brutal murder in Indiana Jones movies, but it's usually bad guys usually the bad guys this is a lot of innocent people get murdered in this movie but that mm-hmm. is what i think mangold is saying remember in three days of condor condor goes out to get lunch everybody gets Everybody's massacred while he's out. away mm-hmm. and so i think the shooting of this woman and the guy that we met for a moment at the retirement party is meant to feel like um yes this is what 70s paranoid you're on the run you're wanted nobody knows what you're really up to 
And the, but it also brings the introduction of the subplot that I just don't like, which is he's wanted for murder. I mean, I kind of enjoy saying Indiana Jones is wanted for murder, but I don't yeah. think it's a good subplot because it doesn't go anywhere. It's never resolved. Yeah. I, I worried as soon as he looked at his hand and it had blood on it and went, oh, no, I like oh, no. literally I might have even lipped it like, oh, no. And then when you see it on the phone with a fingerprint, like a clear fingerprint, yeah. I yeah. knew that's where they were going. Um, what do you think? Like, is it just riffing off of the genre a little to do that? It certainly doesn't serve the story, right? Like my, my friend Patrick was trying to say, well, the, the, it, it got him out of the city. You know, like he had to go. I was like, well, he had to go anyway. He's right? going like anyway. He's Indiana Jones. He's got to go. Yeah. He's there's going. an artifact that's in the wrong hands he's got to go get it so i don't think did you is there anything about that that you think works no the the so i think there, and as i watched it the second time i kind of knew from the first time you could easily excise everything about the wanted for murder pull it right out of the movie and you don't miss a damn thing it moves right along the only thing you would lose is sala's introduction which is the guy no, recognizes Indy and starts going, hey, it's him. And then Sala just punches him, the guy, the guy in the face. Right. He's like, sorry, I'm late, Indy. And that's all you lose, which you could easily like, okay, let's shoot a different way that he appears. So um, I think that, um, so this is where, this is, I think this is a great point, And I wanted to just kind of touch on this as an an indicator of where we are in 2023 and where we are in 21st century corporate filmmaking. I think that everything is that not everything. I think there are so many things that are over explained or over cooked or over added into movies today because some development person sitting in the back of the room says, yeah, but, if he's not wanted, why would he leave? Or wouldn't it be better if he was also wanted for murder? Or and the, and it's a bad idea, and it's an extra idea that appears to add some kind of tension to the story. But it's all dialogue. It's not. It's mm-hmm. not really connected with action. And I feel that's that was when I walked away from this. I felt like the moments where I was kind of scratching my head were the movie was making me ask questions that I didn't even need to ask in the first place, but they were there because right. somebody decided we need to wedge in this one, two, three thing of this idea to put it back into the movie, to fill the movie out. And it's like, no, you don't like, no, you don't. It, it, it's one of the joys of movies is sometimes there will be things in movies that are not explained and you don't think about it until, you know, the next day when you're thinking back over the movie, you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Why did, and it doesn't matter. Right. It, it mm-hmm. It's, so I just feel like we're in this, um, like if you look at the, we're like in this Baroque phase or we're like the, the you know, the Hellenistic art after the Hellenic ideals of Greek art. And then you get into the Alexander the Great phase and everything is overwrought and overmuscled and overconstructed and unbalanced. And I think that's where we are with this sort of 20, it's, it's why, it's why anybody tolerates a two and a half hour movie. Like I'm mm-hmm. surprised people are like, fuck that. I'm not going to sit for that. Or does, or exhibitors used to be like, I don't want to run a two and a half hour movie. I, I got to show less. I got to have less shows if I do that. Right. I can't sell as much yeah. popcorn. Can't sell as many right. tickets. I don't know. I'll tell you that Mark, Mark Harris was talking about this the other day and he was talking a little bit more about it as, um, as box office or budgetary situation. Where, where, where was, did you read this? Or, on or Twitter, just, just a Twitter thread. On Twitter, okay. and he was saying he was saying that in all his research, going back to pictures at Revolution, that this feels like the the 
most like the period right before the American New Wave. Yeah, yeah. Um, not predicting now he wasn't predicting no. another no, new wave not. he was just saying that we we're in Bloated. this period of studio bloat yeah. and corporate entities with the uncertainty of how to make movies and how to actually treat the art form um i i mean to me saying that makes i'm sure that there was a lot of pessimism at the time it's easy to be pessimistic about it i i i have to have the optimism that yes maybe this will result they have to react they have to respond in some way and we're seeing even with this movie a, a no, not a whole lot of people are um, going to the theater as much as they need them to to make up for these gi gigantic budgets. Yeah. Like, this was a $300 million movie that adds at least $200 million or more in marketing. And therefore, with the, sh with the weird you know, math that they do, it's got to make a billion dollars. It's probably not going to do it. Uh -uh. Flash came way, 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 way short. On and on and on. These Flash made Pixar more than Indy, though. Just in that first week, it's not going to make more than indie tracking. No, it's not in the long it's run. It's, it's died so much faster than yeah. um, any movie, maybe, uh, in a long time. But uh, yeah, that opening weekend, I feel like there was a funny negativity about indie going into the opening weekend that it's the opposite is happening. What happened to The Flash? The Flash got horrible word of mouth right out of the gate, and indie's getting good word of mouth. So it's like, got for legs. For the most part, people like it. I think it'll nice. have legs, and it also isn't butted up against another movie. So yeah. it's got. It opens. It opened over the weekend, so we're we're recording this on the fourth of July of two twenty twenty three. I'm just going to say that so that we can contextualize our conversation. It's got so it's also the fourth of July release because nothing's coming out this weekend to, to speak of. Yeah, Nothing, Mission Impossible doesn't come out till the tenth, eleventh, twelfth. They're doing a really weird release where they're kind of releasing it on a Monday, which is odd. Um, yeah, they've got screenings on Mondays and Tuesday maybe next week. But anyway, so it's got a whole like week and a half of opening. And the good word of mouth, I'm hoping the second screening was much more full. The first screening was concerning. I was like, oh, my God, I think this might be half full. And that was at a Dolby Theater on the Thursday night. It opened at a 7 o'clock screening, which are usually the prime time. Then I go on a Monday morning, yesterday morning, July 3rd, 1130, also in the Dolby house, and it was almost full. So I'm hoping that um, the holiday and everything, I mean, not that I really care. <laughs> fuck, fuck Disney. I don't give a shit. One say, But I have ownership of indie in well, a way, yeah, and I, I mean, want it to succeed. It's, but it's, at the same time, the more these movies fail, maybe the more they're going to reevaluate their model and say, maybe we should take this $300 million and split it into fifths and make five, you know, five littler movies that could make us so much. That's anyway. another thing that's like corporate just more corporate bullshit and it's just gross it's just gross yeah <laughs> um so we're at the what are we at the halfway point of the movie ish um maybe not um he gets so he goes to uh morocco right yes, uh, so morocco. from so from uh new york we have sala from, yeah from new york they go to tangier the, and then right and that's tangier. where um and yeah. and so we get into this um sequence where she's trying to sell and it's at this black market which Indy uh, easily conveniently and easily interrupts it's a very easy uh black market deal to it's just in the back of a bar well and, they just had a child that was guarding it so yeah so easy easy peasy <laughs> for Indy and um which yeah. leads us you know which leads us into a couple of a couple of gags a whip gag that's chopped with a gun gag that leads us into a tuck tuck chase that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on um, with some with some amazing gags built into it, some really funny gags, and a lot of just really boring driving stuff. I, 
I do want to say there was the one line. Um, it was a cl- it was a classic indie. Oh, we missed the subway old... though. Oh, it doesn't matter. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh God, yeah, we've missed the whole. Okay, so he chase. escapes in the parade. We we mentioned the parade. He escapes. The one notable thing that happens. I mean, I think it's a fine sequence. It works. It's fine. Um, notably, though, Harrison Ford is really riding a horse at multiple points in the in the scene as an eighty year old man or seventy nine or whatever, however he was. And to me, the most impressive thing is that he gets off that horse with no problem. I, he, when he pulls up on that subway platform and he gets off the horse, I was really impressed. Because if you're 80 years old, getting on the, being on the horse and riding the horse is one thing. Stepping off of it like it's nothing. I'm yeah. super impressed, Harrison yeah. Ford. Yeah. Um, anyway, so then we get to Sala. We get to uh, Sala, the Sala scene's fine. It doesn't hurt anything. Just kind of moves us, transitions us to... I did want to say, so there's this indie, very indie old man line that then, but then taps us back into the subtext again, which is uh, when Voller, you said his name yeah. is Schmidt, yeah. shows up He's and he says, you should have stayed out of this, Dr. Jones. And he goes, you should have stayed out of Poland. I just yeah. think that's really good. <laughs> that's like a good old man thing to say. Yes, um, that's right that got a laugh. That got an audible laugh yeah. in the audience. Oh, did it? And, you must have been with I, some old people. I saw it, um, and well, the thing is, is that I was in the Dolby Theater, which is so damn loud that you almost can't hear anybody reacting to the movie because the and, know, it, and it wasn't like it wasn't ear splitting loud. It was just it was just so loud that the audience's reactions were hard to track because most of the audience was behind me, so I couldn't see anybody reacting. Uh, but there was a the Poland line did get a get a laugh, which was which was nice. They, I, I did hear the, uh, especially on the second screening, I heard a lot of laughs um, all over the movie. But again, I was at the Dolby too, and you can't, sometimes you're like, was that, was that a laugh? Like not a, maybe the Dolby. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people the Dolby is the best place to go. It's always a good presentation there. I never have any trouble. Might not be the best place to see a comedy. I don't know. Anyway, um, so we hit the Tuck Tuck Chase, which, yes, you're right, is a little long. Um, we get this fiance subplot character who probably didn't need to be there i kind of don't understand why when she her and indy run out of the hotel why not just start chasing the bad guys why oh, did i totally to forgot about the mobsters cops? oh yeah the yeah, fiance mobster did... thing get rid of that you don't need that i kind of like it for her character but i don't like it for the action therefore it's it's not worthy of the character like in the... no i like that she's that way and i like that she has this past but it doesn't add enough to bog the action down because they should have just gone straight for that Mercedes that's driving away. It's like, there's the Mercedes. Let's go get on right. the tuck tuck. And then all kinds of things could happen to split them up and whatever, bring them back together. But I'll tell you, you know, they get to, so they get the chase, they get away. They end up on getting caught by the American soldiers and, and CIA, right? The, the bad guys, Fuller and clobber, clabber or whatever his name is. And so they're on that helicopter. The, I, so here's where the movie really starts taking off for me as far as being an Indiana Jones movie plot. I like the scene in the helicopter. I like that. They're just kind of like, she's like, well, they pull the plug and they all just go. It's almost like they knew this was going to happen. Not just now, but eventually this is going to happen and we're going to have to take over. And so Clavier just gets up. Okay. Gets up and starts doing something while she's talking. And all this like kind of mutiny is happening without her realizing. She doesn't think it's a realistic thing that could happen. She sees these guys as some, like there's a couple of thugs and a nerd. Like what's really going to happen here? And she doesn't realize quite how, and she, he's the one that ends up shooting her. Right. Is. Right. And I was she doesn't shocked realize they... that he's actually a 
venomous character like that that's capable of murder she just thinks he's a geek and he is that's the other thing mads mickelson his when you watch it the second time just watch his phys, his physicality he kind of walks upright and leans a little forward sort of like he's nervous all the time he embodies a nerd now mads mickelson couldn't be farther from a nerd he's like the coolest guy in the world but he embodies that and like the way he wears his hat and his costuming the tie's a little too short all this stuff but he is a scientist like first lethal he's lethal yeah. yes he's a scientist he's a nerd this isn't really his territory and yeah. you get that from the opening sequence as well but he is he cares enough to be lethal if necessary and he shoots her yeah it was it was shocking to me too and they take over that helicopter and then you get that moment where the helicopter goes over them fixing the tuck tuck it's like oh Okay, we're just neat little transition here. I uh, didn't have to do it, but but at least uh, we're connecting tissue here, and um, the whole thing with the tuck tuck and everything. And now we got to team up and go to Greece, mm-hmm. and this is where it's really becoming an Indiana Jones movie. That like it's from that point on, that I feel like everything that happens from then on really feels like good old Indy to me. Yeah. And yeah. this, so as I said before, the first time I watched it, I felt like it was getting better and better. It was really after that chase that I started feeling like I was in good hands. So it's um, funny that you, and yeah. when you look at it that way, and you think back to Temple of Doom, because I was, I've been playing this little game in my head that I, and it's just in my head. <laughs> I haven't done it on paper, but I might, where, you know, it's like pluses and minuses comparing Temple of Doom to, to, um, to dial of destiny. Right. And mm-hmm. will there be more pluses than minuses? You know, will certain things, certain things offset each other, like the little kid's good, but it's not as he's not as good as short round. Right. So short round has, has a better kid. Um, Maybe, yeah. she, Phoebe's way better than, than Willie Scott. Oh, way know? better than so, Willie so, Scott. So Willie Scott doesn't do anything. So that, so those two, <laughs> that, those two counter each other that totally counter each other out as far as the sidekick categories go. Um, mm-hmm. But, what it takes in Temple of Doom to get us to the point where that movie's truly on the rails, which is when they get to the Temple of Doom, the midpoint, when they get inside and see Mullah Ram and see the sacrifice and everything. Pro- up mm-hmm. to that point, it is so much of a slog and it's so mm-hmm. obnoxious and it's so hit and miss. Whereas, you know, this movie, it hits that point where the two of them team up uh, after the tuk-tuk chase and you're like... it. it what got me there was way more fun than Temple of Doom and mm-hmm. way more interesting. And I agree with you. Like Temple of like Temple of Doom, from that point on to the end of the movie, I love it. And same with this. I mean, this is just like I it's really it's really on the rails. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when they get to the temple, I think I still think it's kind of hit or miss there. Like I don't like everything with Molaram. I don't like everything about I don't I kind of don't Molaram might be my least favorite Indiana Jones villain. I might yeah. even like Spalco better in King of the Crystal Skull because I just don't know what he wants. I, he just wants Kali to worship Kali and have the stones. Right? No, you're right. You're Kali. right. I'm kind of like I don't his know motivation. What's going on. He's so scary though, and he looks like Boris Karloff. He's scary, and, and he tears a heart out. And tears so a heart out. He's more like an old fashioned villain in in that sense. Yeah, and when, and Indy when Indy gets him. zapped, you know, gets the whammy put on him. That's really that's really scary yeah, yeah. too. Like it's fucking scary in the middle of that movie. Um, I would also just say this has probably been trod over, but I noticed last night with crystal skull, which we watched like the first big chunk of after watching temple of doom. Um, uh, you know, when, when they're debriefing Indy after the, um, after the atomic blast and they're mm-hmm. like, uh, the woman, this woman, uh, 
who who is what who is she what is she you know and he starts to describe her and then they throw this file down and it's like spelko and i'm like he called her spelko in the first sequence of the movie he see he he puts his gun on her and says everybody you shoot me spelko gets it he 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 Indy knows her name. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then later, they, right. he acts like he doesn't know her name until oh, they give God. him the file. And I was like, well, wow. Maybe he, he's playing loose with the. See, he doesn't want to give up. I don't know. You can I always come up either. with something. I don't know either. But yeah. um, anyway, sorry. So, um, but yeah, so I agree with you, John. To, I'm, oh. So they're headed to Greece. They're headed to Greece. It's like a Johnny Quest, oh. James Bond movie. It's going to be it so cool. Johnny, it's becomes Johnny Quest. Yeah. That's so, so cool. the ultimate. Uh, you remember, we went and saw something at the theater, Paul Schrader movie, right? And when we were leaving, we were looking at the poster for this movie, and there was a little in the corner them uh, underwater scuba gear. And I yeah. told you, I was like, "Oh, I'm real excited for this. Yeah. Whatever this is, I'm excited for this." And it it 100 paid off for me. I for one thing, they didn't overdo it. They didn't thunderball it and do it for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> they kept it brief. And yeah. I thought it was clever that okay, they got to do the air from the ship. They're, yeah. they're not taking tanks. Yeah. got to do this. So you have these like lines. You can't cross those lines. There's all these little rules that aren't too complicated, but nevertheless add to the potential stakes. Right. So it's a the super sixties. It's a sixties action movie at this point. Yeah. It's just so located then, within that period. It's so nice. Flopping around in the water is something. Is that a shark? No, it's an eel. Eels are a little too close to snakes for Indy. That's, that's fun. The kid says, Hey, they look just like snakes. He's like, no, they don't. Like, it's a little <laughs> cute. Um, Anyway, uh, we did skip over. I did mention, you know, we have the scene where Andy talks about Mutt. And a lot of people have complained about the lack of Antonio Banderas, right? So we get Antonio Banderas as his friend, who's the scuba diver, deep sea diver, and the has the boat, right? And a lot of people are like, why do we have Antonio Banderas if this is all we're going to get? And I was like, I love him. It's just, he's, a, it's he's, a cameo. He He's a hyper-competent guy. You can tell right away. He listens. He's also a lot of fun. He gets real excited about her magic trick, and he just thinks that's fun. But also when they're talking business, he's just kind of eavesdrops and listens like, okay, he's taking in the information to know what he's going to be dealing with on this mission. And, yeah, it's a cameo. But it doesn't have to be you – know, a lot of people are like, I love Antonio Banderas. Why have Antonio Banderas if we're going to use him for this long? If you so, say that to Antonio Banderas, and he'd go, what are you talking about? I, I thought I did my job. That's what he would say. He goes, did I not do my job? What do you need? Why do you want more of me when I thought I brought everything I needed to to the role? Yeah. It's like, so this is a bigger issue. Like to me, a lot of ner nerds like us, but maybe more nerdy than us, they want movies to serve them That's and, right. or characters or beats or whatever. Take anything you want, trope, everything that the people expect from movies. They want them to serve their wants. And, yeah, and it's and, not about um, you. Anticipation. I want things to serve the movie. Right. <laughs> like he yeah. serves the movie very well, especially as his de demise again was shocking and surprising. Yes. That was another moment where I did not see that coming because I did expect Antonio. Therefore, Antonio Roderick served the movie in that he wasn't expected to die that quickly, and he did. And he did. And yeah, they didn't treat it flippantly. That's what you do they in a movie. <laughs> yeah. 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 Totally. I just love that they treated it like properly, too. They didn't, yeah. it wasn't fun. It was terrible. It was truly dangerous. It made the scene, gave the scene a lot of weight. And then she being the, you know, oh, we skipped over a little bit. I mean, I do, the underwater scene's great. The severing of the line and having it whipped down, killing the one other guy they took down with them was fantastic. I thought yeah. that was just really cool. Um, so they get on the boat and, and Bowler and the boys are there and they really don't have 
any like stand up, but Indy refuses. Now, did you think there's one thing I would have rewritten? He, um, and maybe this is bad. This might be my bad instincts as a writer where I would have written this and you would have read it and go, John, cut this line. But, um, when he gets, when, um, they pull out the, what's it called? Do you remember? The, 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 the Ankathera? No, oh, you the, mean the, oh, the, the, oh, the, the tablet. The disc, but it's in the, the it's tablet. a wooden wax tablet, right? Yeah. And it's got the code written on it. And when he shows it to Indy, he goes, um, will you read this? And Indy stares at it. And so the beat is he stares at it considering whether he's um, going to have to read this or not. And he just goes, no. I, but he was staring at it the whole time. And I thought he, I swear to God, I thought he was going to look up and he goes, oh, do you mean out loud? Because it looked to me <laughs> like he was reading it and he had read it and he had all the information and then, but he wasn't going to share it with them. Yeah. I kind of thought that could have been a good beat. Maybe it's just me. Yeah. Nevertheless, he says no. She says yes because she's got she's wily. She's got an idea, but also we believe she could turn. Yeah. Any at any minute. So it works. And then she reveals this dynamite, and that's all a lot of fun. And then she, you know, they escape on their boat, and she is celebrating the victory. And Indy's like, My friend just got murdered. And it's like, that doesn't happen in Deanna Jones movies. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I kind of dig it. I think some people don't like it. Some people think it's too heavy. I liked it. And she is immediately like, right, I'm sorry. And the kid actually gets it too. Like they cut to the kid and he's like shaken and she's celebrating. So he's not celebrating with her. He's not on her team at this moment. All these good little beats. And and so then Mitch, here's where the first tears happen. <laughs> the second viewing uh -huh. when he takes that wax and he sets it down and he pours the alcohol on it and he sets it on fire. And I go, this is industrious indie. He knows exactly how what's in there. He knows what he's doing. This is him figuring out how to get to this thing. And the Williams score is playing. And it's all this convergence of everything I love. Yeah. Like from indie, from Harrison Ford, from John Williams, from all yeah. of it. Yeah. It was like, this is the first. And that was, to me, this is the first moment of wonder in the movie. Where you get that indie, yeah. the wonder that you get when he goes in the Well of Souls. The wonder yeah. that you get when they open the arc and all this stuff. And that's the first. So really now it's starting to really get traction as an indie movie. But it's really beautiful, like to have this moment where this thing melts down. And it's a little gold disc, and then I love, like I said earlier, I love that she says, "Teddy, hold it," because she's like her, she's like his big sister. Yeah, she's like, I've dealt with artifacts. My dad had them around all the time. You're just a kid. You haven't seen this kind of stuff. You should feel the weight of this. You should see how amazing this thing is. Anyway, um, and she's still playing that. I just care about the money game, but it's starting to fall. It's starting to fall off um, as the movie's going on that she's she's the shell is cracking so but they figure out so they figure out they need to go to syracuse as opposed to what they told him was alexandria i do think they might have gone the uh, gone a different direction for uh, until they got out of line of sight and then turned west yeah i know i saw i thought about that it's like but wow i can he, see them not thinking about that that's exactly where they're headed they're going west and, or they and think then... he's dead probably right they, they might think he's dead. That explosion was pretty violent. Yeah. I don't know. Nevertheless, who cares, you know? But he sees um. That's your hanging off the going sub west. moment. It's all right. Yeah. Oh, there's, yeah. I guess it's where we um, need to go. What did you think of, what did you think of Mangold's treatment of the maps? Oh, I was His, really, I, 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 I can exactly tell you what I thought about it because I remember exactly what my brain did when we got to the end of the map sequence. I was like, 
wow, that really shows how far they had to go. <laughs> like it, the, somehow oh, really? that map treatment really made me feel like I wasn't way, way back looking down on a globe with a line, line, line. Something about the way that the maps moved me made me feel like, like we were, we actually crossed a distance here, you know, like emotion. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I was, I was sort of taken with it. And speaking of which, I, I am realizing now that we did completely skip over the flat, the first flashback ever in Indiana Jones, right? Uh, that's true. Has there been that's a flashback? True. I don't um, that know. It goes that... back to the, pl I don't but... think there's ever been one. No. There's because... been scenes from the past, like right. the opening of Last yeah. Crusade, but never in the middle of a movie do they think back. And we get the scene where we see Basil his lost his mind we see young wombat they even put the little mark on her head like yeah uh, and then you have rich has it she's really good the girl was really good and and you have indy kind of quasi de-aged he's like in between and he's wearing his fugitive clothes he's wearing the same clothes he wore he's wearing a blue shirt with a tie and a tweed jacket like in the fugitive anyway <laughs> um but we get that scene. I just realized we completely skipped over. No, it's a good we're, scene. We're not doing. I, and I know, love go see the movie. They yeah, not the necessarily. They know. They know. But the, but the map. So we get the map with the plane, and then we get the map later with Voler and the boat, like superimposed. And the first time I saw it, I was like, "Oh, it's an interesting new way to do the map thing." And then in between viewing, somebody I saw somebody say it looked like a DVD menu, <laughs> and I went, "Oh no!" And then when I watched it, second time, I was like. I get it. It does kind of look like the oh, DVD. If you were watching an indie DVD from like 2008 or something. Oh, that's um, nevertheless. Anyway, we should, we should keep this moving. Um, so they get to Syracuse and here's where it gets a little clumsy um, as far as the action move, how the action moves. So they have the kid. They're there. They're going to gather the stuff. They're going to go to this tomb of who is it? Um, Dionysus ear. Dionysus. Right. Um, and the kid is seeing these like rich kids and the rich kids make fun of them. Oh yeah. That was, and that out. so all of this is to get the kid to break off for a minute. Yeah. It's seemingly not only does it, it gives him a little bit of character, but he goes and he robs the kid and then he buys an ice cream and then he immediately finds the bad guys. And then immediately Jones happens to walk up and see them take him. And then immediately Helena happens to walk by and he says, they took him. And it was really clumsy, yeah, really clumsy. It was like they, they could not figure out how to, super, to to tie that together. When all they had to do was they're gathering gear. All they had to do was ask the kid to go grab something somewhere and get caught. Right. And they could see it. You right. know, there's all kinds of ways to have avoided the clumsiness of that. But nevertheless, they did it. And that's one of the weaker parts of the movie. But um, and it's how and many they kind of figure out seven minutes we yeah, can get rid of. Yeah maybe two three yeah, yeah it's probably um, not that long yeah but um but then there's this point where the, it's well they're not gonna hurt them we just have to find the thing first so it makes you wonder why the kid needed to be taken in the first place right other than what happens later which could have been done another way so a lot of this stuff's a little clumsy getting us from landing in syracuse the opening of the sequence to the big moment at archimedes tomb um is all very clumsy now i do like their the echo and all that stuff that when they're roaming through the caverns and i love the water display then now we got indy figuring shit out because he's, he's figuring shit out and it's also man. so it's both treasure hunt Educated and there's also guy figuring shit out yeah. there's also a Sorry. journey to the center of the earth quality mm -hmm. to it like you know yep. again 60s adventure movies it made me think about that the two groups chasing each other through a underground caverns and everything which I, I and i did 
like it because this is Raider stuff. We're in indie zone. Yeah. It's Indiana Jones. He's the spelunker of the highest order. He's a brilliant professor. So when he gets to a pool of water and he knows his subject is Archimedes, I mean, the first thing, as soon as they mention Archimedes, the first thing I think of is water displacement, right? Is that mm-hmm. what, I mean, to me, that's what I, how I learned Eureka is how I learned who Archimedes was in grade school was he, he got in the tub and the tub rose and he realized that the way his weight made the tub like displace the water. And he said, Eureka, that's the first story I ever heard about Archimedes. So when he figures out that, oh, I just got to put these things in the pool, I was like, I felt smart, right? Yeah. So this sometimes nice. when Indy figures shit out that you kind of knew and you go, oh, yeah, it feels good, you know? But it feels good to see him act like a professor. It's my favorite part of Temple of Doom is actually when he so casually um, is not only able to converse in the language of the vill- people in the village, but he knows the story of the stones. And, and it's not a big whole thing like it is in Raiders, even though I love that scene. And it's not Donovan's apartment um which is a little bit less elegant um the apartment's very elegant the scene is isn't that much it's kind of forced i just love how casually he like he's like huh oh, yeah speaking language and then going this is what he's saying about the stones i love it when indy knows his shit and yeah. he's the smartest guy in the room and so having we're finally getting there with it and he displaces the water and then of course they got to fall accidentally get to the next chamber that's you got to fall you got to slide down something right right at some point and so they get to the tomb and the big reveal happens. Now, you had to have tried to guess some shit from this point, right? So they get they find Archimedes, they find the dial, and they find a watch on his right. wrist and propellers on the phoenix that's on the side of the casket. You had to start guessing there, right? You right. certainly you were like, okay, what is this about? Like, where's the watch come from? And I had some theories like that went through my head, but um this is the point where they get caught in what happens is the kid. So the whole reason for the kid to get kidnapped is so he could split off and then be there to save the day at the right moment, which there's so many other ways that you could have done that. Right. But, um, and I will say archers, uh, my son, Archer, for those who are listening uh, that don't know, I have a son, Archer, 10 years old. Absolute favorite part was when he killed the big guy. We got out of the movie as me and him and my friend Patrick and Archer goes, I just want to say that a 12-year-old kid with a little bitty mustache killed a buff guy. <laughs> that's what that was his like <laughs> review of the movie almost. He loved it. And that's a brutal death. Boy, that guy. Boy. Anyway, um, so all those things. Again, that felt a little Johnny Quest too, to be honest, other than the yeah. murder part. But yeah. um, so he saves the day and um, we get the shootout and we get the shocking shooting of Indiana Jones. Uh, were you not a little taken aback there? Did you not get a little worried or... I was worried. Yeah. I thought this is the fatal shot. It, it's going to take a while, but it's it might be the end for yeah. Indy. We yeah, I, I mean, listen, die in this movie. after Her- after saw Han Solo dies, uh, maybe maybe James Harrison Bond. said and James Bond. Yeah, uh, maybe we're going to kill Indy. I, I agree. I was like, this could. There's all sorts of possibilities of where this could go. And her reaction to it, she's. Now she's all, she's wombat again, whatever. Yeah. She sees him shot and she's so distraught. And it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like seeing her dad again or something like seeing her dad dying again or something. And all of it starts to come to a head emotionally, really strongly in this point. And so then we get this whole action beats with the planes that, you know, um, and then you see Voller put on the watch. So the guesswork then becomes, wait a second, who the hell is, is that even, 
Archimedes right. in the casket. That's what I'm asking. I'm like, in this day and age where everything's timey-wimey, weird, and multiversal, um, who's actually, whose body was that actually? So when he puts on the watch, I go, oh no, is that full? Is that, is he, is this somehow going to end up, I'm yeah. just doing all kinds of stuff. But where were you on the plot at the point where they're on the plane and Indy starts saying, so who is it going to be, Ike or Churchill, or who are you going to kill to win the war? Yeah. Were you buying into it on that level? That he still? wanted to go like, back. Okay, you're kill, going back he wanted to, kill to go some... back, kill Hitler, and take over the, take over I the Third Reich. I did not see that Reich. coming. No, I didn't see it coming I either, but I, I thought coming. that's the best yeah. It's the best variation on the kill Hitler time joke that I've ever heard. Because, um, you know, he, he, he was going to kill Hitler because he has aspirations of winning I'm... the war. He's the scientist. Well, also, it's he's the mathematician, scientist, yeah. physicist. Yeah. He's the one that knows is smart enough to know get, all the moves. That's that what he says. It's a matter of moves faster. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and so, I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was one of the best like little twists I've seen in a long time in a movie. To be honest with you, yeah. I was legitimately shocked. And then when he puts on the gear and he's like standing there against the you know canopy of the plane and full Nazi regalia, I was like, this is pretty amazing. This guy is a great villain. This is a great villain. So and it his helps. All, uh, uh, he wants that. Ta- he wants a taste of that German Nazi. I want to go back when the, <laughs> the good old days, you know, I think that's fantastic for a henchman. Yeah. And it's and all the stuff on the plane. I'm just all on board. I don't. So, and I even like the kid kid flying the plane. So the continental drift. <laughs> well, actually, right. I will say, <laughs> not that it's not that it's insulting my intelligence, but I just I thought it was amusing that they decide to have this horrible rainstorm going on during this big escape on the air at the airport when everybody gets onto the planes, and she manages to sneak onto the plane, um, climbing up the landing gear. Oh, I see. Phoebe's character. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the landing sure. gear got you, got you. Um, but I was just thinking, you know, she makes this jump and she and grabs the landing gear in pouring down rain when everything is slick as snot. And I but was, she, just, and I was you like, forgot. Yes, she didn't have gloves you on. Forgot. Did she? she slipped. You forgot. She slips one time. She does slip. So yeah, they slip. they let you know that they're aware that this isn't easy because she easy. reaches for it once and slips off. Therefore, they're saying, look, we know it's ridiculous, but we're at least, again, back to not insulting your intelligence. Yeah. We're at least going to let you know that we're not dummies. We know that this isn't easy, so we're going to show it be hard. So she's not a superhero. She doesn't do it like Captain America would. She has trouble with it. I knew she she missed. I guess I didn't realize The one in a million times. Yeah. Yeah, I think she reaches up and her hand kind of slips up. She goes, ah, shit. At the end of the day, we want her to to succeed. And that's more important than anything else. And there was 99 times she wasn't going to. We saw one of the times she wasn't going to. And then we happened to see the one where she did. Exactly. Right. You kind of think of it that way. So all that being then, said, w- with him standing there in the in the regalia, everything that we've done to kind of excite us with this idea and this new variation on Kill Hitler, um, I don't know that I totally understand the continental drift business. Because uh, it's not, it's a red herring. It doesn't have anything to do with any of it. He, for what they understand in that moment... It's correct, but that's not how the dial works in the end. What they figure once once the shit goes down, they actually go through the rift. You f- you figure out that the, it, the dial can it, only there do was one no thing. other place you were ever going to go. Yeah, right. the only place it was right. ever going to go was right. to that place in time. 
So the continental drift was a little bit of a red herring there to make us go, where are they going to go again? Where are I they think gonna that go? was to throw us off. Where are they going to go? Yeah, yeah. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? Yeah. And so, um, but they say it, you know, I, th- I heard Indiana Jones minute guys on their, on their reaction episode, having only seen it once when they recorded it, were all questioning that late. And Jerry kept saying, was it that you had to go to that? Is that what he made it for? And I think it, when they watch it again, I think Tom's seen it again. And when they all watch it again, they'll go, it's sad, but it's actually yeah, sad. It says it. Um, yeah, it does say it. It's a, it does say it. So the continental drift thing, but again, it's smart. Mm-hmm. It's Indy being smart and he's mm-hmm. not wrong and in the way th- that they think that the thing works. And they're thinking about the audience, trying to get the audience to earn this. We're going to earn this crazy jump in time as best we can, given how surprising it's going to be. Um, and, and if you can, if we can plant any seeds, if, if all these seeds that we've been planted, these breadcrumb trail, maybe they're going to lead us to the point where once it happens, the audience goes, oh yeah. <laughs> and I did. I was like, yeah. here we go. Oh, me too. <laughs> and Ford and Mickelson. So getting into the craft of building like a suspenseful scene, um, Mangle, it's cut very well. It's cut very well. And Ford and Mickelson sell the uncertainty yeah. of the moment. So they're cutting and he's going, they're counting down. So you get the classic countdown. So we know at what point we get more and more worried. We get more and more worried every time they say a number. Mickelson can't figure out the the other, the henchman Southern guy is saying to him, he's like, shut up. I'm thinking, you know, all these things are ramped up and Indy is ramping him up. He wants him to be more ramped up. So he's saying stuff to him. And one of the things he says is, um, I don't know where we're going, but it sure as hell ain't 1939. And the, as the audience, you believe it's Indiana Jones yes, saying it. He's the right. smartest guy. He, and he's not wrong. That's but right. you're going, they're going to end up, are they going to go to the Old West? Are they going to go? You, know, you have no idea. So the uncertainty builds the tension even more. And the suspense of all that's so good. And then, um, and then you get like, uh, <laughs> I saw someone complain about the movie a little bit and how the choice, some of the choices that Mangold makes of how he shoots the action and so on. And like wider, too many wide shots, like too much action and wide shots. Somebody was saying that. And so I thought about it in that moment when they're about to reach the, um, there's a really wide shot and you can see the sky and the plane's small and you can see the little fissure. And, um, I thought about what that guy said and I went like, if Palin Pressburger were making this movie, this would be a shot from their movie. This looks oh, like yeah. a Palin Pal- Pressburger shot. It does. Yeah. And, um, and I was like, man, I don't know what that guy's talking about. I think it looks pretty, I think it looks pretty good. Um, the way it's shot is pretty smart, but anyway, so we get to that. Um, I did want to point out back to the theme of not insulting our intelligence, I think Mangold is so attuned to that idea. I think he is that kind of guy. When you watch Logan, when you watch his like genre fair, uh-huh. he is always very smart and he is always thinking the audience is smarter than a lot of other genre people are. And therefore he put a goddamn pilot on that plane. He knew it's too silly to have this kid fly the plane alone. He needs the guy sleeping. It's totally believable. This uh-huh. guy's just a pilot. He flew in. He didn't have time to fly home that night. So he just crashes in the back of his plane like a trucker. Yep. And he wakes up in the middle of it. And therefore we have a competent pilot that can land a plane and can get him back through the fissure. And that's good writing. I love it. It's anyway, great. so they get to, so they get to Sar- the siege of Syracuse. First though, it does look, I was sold for a minute that they had succeeded. So it's, it's Syracuse. And I thought those are, that's World War II ships until I saw the arc of the, the, projectiles coming from them it was like that's like trebuchet fire that is not cannon 
or anti-aircraft and it was just i thought it was so beautiful and he's like what are this uh, roman tri- those are roman triremes and then andy's immediately turns into professor yeah and he's like locating um now i will say when i first saw archimedes i went oh i'm not sure about that. i'm not sure we actually want to see archimedes yeah but it worked for me eventually as it went along it worked for me but at first it did feel a little bit like bill a bill and ted moment <laughs> when they showed him <laughs> i was like archimedes how's it going you know um but uh <laughs> anyway um so i mean we're pretty much at the end of the movie here but uh did you think so we'll just go through it they have there's a big fight the the henchman tries to shoot as many romans as he can it's just wildness it's just <laughs> it's complete so insanity mickelson mickelson's so good at being like in the red flustered by this whole thing is like just everything's gone wrong right and they're not killing him in this like grotesque grotesque fashion like they usually do it's just like you're going to go down a plane crash. and th- But they do burn him. Like when they, you do see his body, when Archimedes comes up and takes the watch off, he's grizzly. really badly burned. So it's, it's like, grizz- yeah. we know in Indy, you do want, you want dismemberment or something of your villain every yeah. time. Right. Um, so uh, really what we want to get to though, is they escape the plane. Now she's there to save him. Good gag bombing the Nazis. She goes in and she's like, good and tog guys. And they all turn around and she pulls that lever and bombs them out. I thought that was fun. Yeah, it's great. Um, but, uh, they jump out of the plane. They're there. Indy's hurt. Indy's looking around. He can't believe where he is. And he's um, resigned to staying. Okay. Did you think he was going to stay? Did you I... believe it could happen? And then no. did you believe that his body was the one that they found in the casket? For I did. Oh, for a little while, it's like, is he going to stay? He... And is it going to be Indy's body in the casket that has the watch on? Well, the only reason um, that I that I didn't... I just knew, I mean, I, you know how I am. I, I pretty much hate time travel movies. I don't like mm-hmm. the paradoxes and I don't, they just don't, I mean, I live back to the future, but mostly yeah, Bill and Ted's, of course, right. Bill and Ted and city on the edge of forever, but you know, in the general, ones that don't take it overly seriously in general, <laughs> I don't like time travel stuff, yeah. but I did think, well, he can't stay because then Indiana Jones, you know, there's going to be a timeline he will never be born mm-hmm. in the, you know, blah, 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 blah. and I was like, they're not going to do that. And I don't want him to do that. And it makes my head hurt. So I was really grateful that uh, he didn't, that she punched him. I believe that he wanted to stay. I believe that mm-hmm. as an 80 year old man with a dead son and a divorced, you know, and, and, and no wife and a neighbors that keep playing the Beatles too loud downstairs that he was, he was happy to be in this place where he can see the world that he always loved and communicate clearly with Archimedes that he speaks his, his uh, ancient Greek is good. So, yeah. um, cause his dad, his dad taught him, right? Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> anyway, I'm good yeah. with, I'm good with him wanting to stay. Uh, I think that it was great that she, I think the whole business about the piece of paper of like, follow this stuff back, you know, it's like basically just fly back through that hole. It's still there. And so you'll get, it'll take you right back home. Would it, you know, but anyway, I like that she punched him out and then we could jump ahead. I, I, I welcomed that um, narrative. That got a big response from the second audience. When she punched him, it got a lot of laugh, like good laughs. Yeah. Like relieved laughs. Yeah. And just, they just liked her line. She she was like, uh, he's like, I have to do this. And she goes, so do I. And punches him in the face. People really dug that moment. Yeah. 
And I'll tell you this. He says, um, I think this is another um, uh, moment where Mangold is smarter than a lot of writers. When she's like, you have to go back. And he goes, for who? I think a lot of writers would have written her saying, well, for me, for one, to show like, oh, her arc has come fully around and she does need him. But because Mangold goes, I set this up. It's already all in there. You watch the movie already. She says these things that set this moment up. She's gone through her change. You saw how she reacted to him getting shot. She doesn't need to say it, and it's not in character for her to say this. But you know that that's what she's thinking when she when she, when he asked that mm-hmm. question. Um, I think that's great. And um, th- there was the part in me. So, I, like I said, I wasn't sure if he was going to stay or not, and I didn't. And I was worried that there was going to be this. Oh, the twist is that he found his own body one time. Yeah. Um, but then I went, oh, Karen Allen's in this movie. I know she is. She hasn't been in it yet. And so <laughs> I, 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 I that, told myself, but... I was like, I don't think Karen Allen's going to go to his grave or something. I don't think they're going to have that scene. Yeah. So she's got to have a scene. And therefore, I, I, I kind of knew that it wasn't going to happen. Um, but so that gets us to then the, 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 you know, epilogue of the movie, which they're back in time. They're back in the real time at his apartment. He's recovering from his wound. And um, Marion shows up looking like a good old earthy lady from the 60s i loved it i love yeah. that they didn't do her up I, she just looks uh yeah she looks so right for the for the moment yeah and she's like the best period thing in the movie in a way like the way she comes in with those groceries that kind of archaic looking bag yeah and she's got that little um blouse on and everything i was just like and of course i love her so much i mean i love karen allen and i love marion favorite yeah second yeah. favorite character in all of indiana jones probably right. and right. um did you notice though i didn't notice this on the first one but you remember back when he's in his apartment he's going to go to work he sees the divorce papers on the um cabinet yeah he's puts the milk in his coffee he takes the milk to the refrigerator and there's a picture of marion right puts the magnet and over he takes face. a magnet did you notice when she takes the food to put it in the fridge and he's like what are you doing here she's like putting food in the refrigerator there was not a morsel in it and she's putting the food in the refrigerator andy slyly while without even looking away without talking he reaches up and takes the magnet and moves it back to where no, it was i didn't notice that <laughs> it's really that's great, great. It, i was like that's such a yeah. great moment um but she, i and and you know what it was fiend servicey to have the kissing scene in a way but i thought it was really earned. that was great totally earned. and then when he says when she asks him where it hurts, it's like, it feels, okay, this is a callback. So maybe callback's the better word than the fan service. Like, I think sometimes we overuse the fan service term. This is a callback. When she says it, and he, go, he goes, it, hurt, it, um, it hurts everywhere. And she goes, I know what you mean. And you're like, oh, he just explained earlier that her grief was such mm-hmm. that she couldn't get, oh, and I was like, Mary, <laughs> it made me so sad for her yeah. in that moment. But then they kind of have this sweet moment where they rekindle their like real, the real impetus of their romance. Like yeah. we don't talk about the first romance they had. No, it was great. Was. It was like it was and so it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It I real. had a tear in my eye, yeah. and I thought it was a fitting end to the to the five films. I'm so glad that they made this movie because God going out on Crystal Skull would just kind of suck. You oh, know, isn't that? That's the thing, you know, people, again, the, do we need this movie question that always is asked, which I think is kind of silly. We don't well, really yeah. need any of them, but a, for the franchise, yes, I think we needed something better than Chris's skull to take Indy out on the, him walking out of the chapel, having married Marion's okay, but 
this is much better. This feels he's seen history. Finally got to see history firsthand. And he has Marianne, even though they went through a tough time that their love is such that it's going to be fine. And then I really do think that what I was, the theme that I was talking about of this like post-war Nazi um, makes it timely. You know, it's not mm-hmm. unnecessary. It's, it's a, I think this is a great, again, I, it, a lot of people wrote this movie. It's not just Mangold. We just keep saying Mangold, Mangold. But in the end, I do think it's him. He's <laughs> always a pretty smart guy uh, when it comes to telling stories. And he works a lot in, in genre like this. And he always brings a little bit more to it. And I think he knows what he's doing. And it was well, a thoughtful way to go Well, he has said in interviews that out. he came in with the, with um the two writers and they, you know, they pretty much, he said they did this major overhaul of David Kep's script, that it's a, yeah. di- it's a different script. It changed. Kep dra- wrote Crystal Skull, right? Dramatically. I think so. I can't remember. Um, he's but a, but Kep, you know, but Kep worked always. on multiple drafts. He left and he came back mm-hmm. and then they had somebody else working on it. And, but then when Mangold, when Spielberg stepped away, Mangold came in and he, you know, he has said that they did this, major 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 rewrite on the script um you know so i don't mean to to be leaving um the writers out you know because like obviously i mean credited writers are um david kep first position and then jez uh, butterworth and john henry butterworth who are brothers who were working with mangold to um on on the draft are those the guys (laughs) i swear hold on a second i've got to look this up do you have them on IMDb or what are you on IMDb? Um, yeah, I mean, I've got um, it. I've got him on. Yeah, I've got him. What do you need? What do you want to know? I, I, I would swear those. Um, hold on. You mean what did they, what, what have they this, written? Because I feel like I kind of have to do it myself. I mean, they worked, um, they wrote Edge of Tomorrow and they wrote um, uh, Black Mass and they worked on Spectre and Ford versus Ferrari, which they had, which for was. For some a, reason. Cruella, Flag Day. For some reason, I thought they directed the AMC piece, the AMC Nicole Kid. I'm I'm still not saying that they didn't because I do think it was two brothers. Um, oh, that directed the we go to the theater thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe it's two brothers because I know Bill, Billy Ray wrote it. Um, we have to talk about that. We have to talk about this. Nope, Cronin. Uh, Cronenwith is their name. Sorry. Okay. Um, Butterworth, Cronenwith. You could see how I kind of okay, that sure. might be yeah. Sorry, fellow. Sorry, Butterworths. I didn't try to implicate you in the AMC Kidman promo. <laughs> um, even though I don't mind I don't mind it that much. Um, but anyway, uh yeah, and we talked about John Williams. We of course John Williams, I think this is his last score. I, I heard he backtracked. Sad, I heard I he kind of stepped back from that. Yeah. He said he was going to retire, and then he was okay. like, well, maybe not. But it was great. It was really. It's great. It was so fun to hear. You need, Have you listened to it on its own yet? No, not yet. It's good. Yeah. It's a good listen. Yeah. We did. Uh, we put it on the car before the movie and then listened to it after the movie, and I've listened to it a little bit since. It's great. Um, so, who else is there? We, I don't want to like leave anybody out of the name check. Uh, we've got the writers. who And who shot it? Oh, um, Faden, um, uh, Papa Michael, who shot, and what, what who else? works with Mangold and Alexander Payne, and and he shot something for Vim Benders. I can't remember what, but he's oh, made, okay. he's worked with Mangold before. Uh, and it, okay. it looks good. I just wish it had been. I just wish fun. it had looked more like a '60s movie, just a little bit, a little bit more. Little, and you know, you miss. You know, 
you talk about Spielberg stepping up, and this can be the last thing we talk about, but um, you do miss the Spielberginess of it. Like it's it definitely is not a Spielberg movie, and um, I don't think Mangold was was trying to emulate Spielberg or anything. But you know, when I watch Crystal Skull after I, I, I as much I have a ton of problems with that movie, but there's still a Spielberg movie. Mm-hmm. There's still all these like flourishes with the camera, the Kaminsky. Um, I mean that was the only Kaminsky indie right that he shot mm-hmm. um because he didn't start until to schindler's list and saving private ryan but and then and then he's never i thought right. oh, i think schindler's list i don't think anyone else has ever shot a movie for spielberg since i don't think so. um but um i don't mind i kind of i think again to name check our friends from indian gentlemen um tom taylor was saying it might have been fun you can't can't undo it now and it's over but it might have been fun to see um, a more Bond-like approach to indie and actually see a few different directors take on and have a few extra movies over the years instead of taking so long between them. Um, probably not. Maybe it wouldn't have been a good idea. But it would have been interesting to see some real different approaches to directing an indie movie. Can, and, and this one is one. Can so. we agree if we're ranking the Indiana Jones movies that this is this is number three? It is to me now. Yeah, uh, it is to me too. Um, I, I told you after I saw it the first time that I didn't think it could possibly beat the first three, mainly because the uh, that's prime Spielberg with shooting on film and it just looks the way it's supposed to look and all these things. But after watching again, the story is so strong. Um, and I'm a three. I like three. I, I like Last Crusade. I don't care what anybody says. No, I, I like Last. It. It's I a like, little bit. I it's think a little milk toast, you know, for of a movie. It's better than it's Temple of I kind of like that. I kind of like it's. It is. It's not I, better directed, but it's better. But it's a better movie. T- Temple of Doom is a wild swing, and I respect it for that. And I do like. Uh, I do like it. Um, and the Last Crusade is is a fastball down the middle, and I like that too. Um, the Conneriness, the the Connery aspect. The last time I watched it, I went, you know, this he just takes this movie so far for me. I love oh, yeah. him. I love the characterization of Indy's dad that he brings, but I like the relationship so much. The cliff scene, you know, really brings it home. But also I have just huge memories. I didn't get to see Temple of Doom in the theater because my parents wouldn't let me. Right. Right. So last crusade was my first. Um, and that day is still etched in my memory. Like one of the top five days of my life, as I, far as movie going, you know, and, and, I th- and so I, I love, I think that the other, second, th- but, the other yeah. thing about Temple of Doom that you just kind of have to acknowledge and, I felt it when the movie came out, you know, it's, it is this real direct throwback to Gunga Den and Gunga Den mm-hmm. is problematic. It's just, it's, it's Imperial mm-hmm. British racist patronizing and, um, and Indiana Jones and the temple of doom. It's got this white savior thing going on. It others, the othering that is happening all through it good guys, bad guys, whatever's children's poor peasants is really pretty gross. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that it's of all of the ones it's the most problematic in that respect. Also, also it's like Spielberg makes 1941 and then he recovers with, with Raiders and the hubris of him to think, but I really still can do comedy and I'm really funny and he, he makes terrible comedy choices 
in Temple of Doom. Again, he goes right back to some of that 1941 playbook. And it's just like, oh, gross. It's just, this isn't funny. It's just labored and tedious. It's it's the thing about Spielberg. You know, I told, uh, I was trying to explain to my screenwriting, intro to screenwriting class, why they were all like worried. Oh, I don't know if my thing's going to be good enough or all this. And I was trying to explain to them the concept of the, like, the batting average in writing, like you're going to fail way more, just like a baseball player. You're going to fail way more than you're going to succeed. So don't worry about it. And I use Spielberg as an example. I said, the ultimate example is the most famous filmmaker in the world fails miserably with his ideas way more than he succeeds. He succeeds so well that what we end up getting is great most of the time. But when you listen to the Raiders story sessions or you watch the back, mm-hmm. some of that stuff where he's where he's like, we're going to do a new gag. You know, that part where Sally gets the water for the Nazis at the table mm-hmm. while Indy goes to hide and finds Marion. He had this whole thing in the behind the scenes. I don't know if you saw this part where he's like, we got a new gag we're going to do today. And he's like directing one of the Nazi guys. He goes, you're going to see Sala and Sala is going to be this guy that he saw before. And there was this whole thing that they cut out of the movie. And you're going to see him and you're going to dive across the table. And it's just dumb, just dumb. And you can tell as he's saying it that nobody else is like into it. And it's just dumb because he's a big dork, but he's not afraid. He's not afraid of trying new ideas, even if they're stupid sometimes. Luckily, most of them die in the story sessions. But sometimes in like 1941 Temple of Doom, he gets that gag stuff too far into the process and actually makes it. Yeah. And you're right. Like the he's not a comedian. He can. No, his you know, gift Jaws is, is to, funny and... his gift is to find the comedy, the the organic comedy within a situation. Um, when he fails mm-hmm. is when he's imposing comedy on top of something. In in my opinion, you and, know? and you can see so then in the behind the scenes stuff of Raiders and other any other movie you see, you can see how well he communicates with the actors. That he can probably a lot of times just mine it with them. Like he finds the humor with them as opposed to, I came up with a new gag today kind of shit, you know? So you can, you can guess that occasionally some funny stuff that happened in Jaws probably came out of conversation Well, or, you know yeah. what I mean? Or, yeah, so yeah. Like, well, that's what you're saying, organically all, coming had to had all that time to of... work with the actors and their instincts and the, you know, the dinner table scene with the kid and the hands and all that. I would say this, um, which by the way, he tries to do it in Temple of Doom, having um, short round mimic what Indy's doing, you know, in a two mm-hmm. shot and it doesn't work. It's like, Oh, it's the jaws bit, but it worked in jaws, but it doesn't work here. Cause the context is different. It's not about connection. It's about mimicry. But let me just say before I yeah. forget that. Um, so the two documentaries about the making of, of the one about making Raiders of the last arc and the other one making a temple of doom that were produced by Lucasfilm and shot, you know, on film behind the scenes and ran on, I believe they ran on the PBS of, um, they PBS is who ran them uh, as a standalone one hour show are both on YouTube. They're not on the extras of any of the, of, of the DVDs, maybe because they're too raw or maybe because I don't know why, but I'm just saying they're there on YouTube. And if you're interested in, in a, another version of the behind the scenes, that's although constructed, but maybe less sanitized, uh, I should totally recommend both of those. They're both really good. And if you have the 4K Indiana Jones box set, it comes with a bonus disc. Does not have those exact productions on them, but they do take a lot of the footage 
and construct a um, behind the scenes kind of real. There's no narrator. Um, the only the only interview footage is all from the time. So there's no like talking heads that they pop in, but they restored all that footage. So it looks really good. And on top of that, they restored footage of outtakes and in between scene stuff that they caught on the film itself, the actual like camera that they were right. shooting the movie with. And they restored it to full HD and it's beautiful. Like there's this whole thing where Alfred Molina and uh, Harrison Ford are talking to Spielberg offset and making all these jokes and it's just immaculate looking. And you're like, wow. And you never see the stuff that doesn't look raw. And then there's even one point later where Marion and Indy are walking through the bazaar um, eating dates and Spielberg just decides to mess around and run into the shot and he runs after them and like does this thing and then he runs off and Harrison Ford chases him with a watermelon and then he like kicks this watermelon and it blows up in the air and it all looks as good as the movie does <laughs> like it's so strange to see behind the scenes stuff that is as immaculately restored as the movie itself yeah. I to me that just that gets me I yeah, love that stuff cool. and then there's a whole reel at the end of that film that has the same kind of stuff for Temple of Doom and Last Crusade and Crystal Skull including this whole gag where Spielberg, when Indy and Marion come out of that, they push the rock out and then they run out from the well of souls that then Spielberg just runs in to the shot and dives into the hole. And then everybody grabs the rock and shoves it in there. I don't, it's just really beautiful to look at anyway. You get to see fun, fun times in the background uh, behind the scenes of Fridges Lost Ark, but man, we're way, boy, this All right, is, so this is like our, no, than I thought is, it was going to be. This is great. This is like our um, Last yeah. Jedi episode. I hope it is every, yeah. every bit as entertaining and polarizing as that was. So, so. Oh, it'll probably be less polarizing. <laughs> yeah, less polarizing. I don't see this movie being quite the Last Jedi level of polarization. Yeah, well, but, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, well, okay. That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our indie talk. And um, we'll be back with some commentaries or something. I don't know what we're going to be doing, but we'll have more episodes coming in the future. So, oh, and also, of course, always come over to our Patreon. Check out our, uh, we're doing some Mission Impossible episodes right now. Uh, even if you're listening to this years in the future, you should be able to go back and access the old Patreon episodes. So, um, all right. Well, thanks, Mitch, for the chat. See you later. Bye bye.